This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from the Broadmoor Hotel. When I first came to this hotel, I will tell you the year, 1973, what was I amazed about? Yes, they had their own ice skating rink, yes, they had their own lake, yes, they had all sorts of things that they kept here. At that time, they even had their own zoo. They had their own fire department. That, to me, blew my mind. They still do. But uh, like any fire department, they need some help, and they get that help from the surrounding area of Colorado Springs. And joining me here on the show right now, the fire captain of the Colorado Springs Fire Department, Steve Oswald, otherwise known as Oz. I can call you Oz, can't I? Sure, that'd be fine. So, I mean, this is a very interesting community because if you take a look at everything that's here, not just the hotel, not just the resort, you got the Army, you know, you got the, you got the division out there, you got the Air Force Academy, you got a lot of real estate. 
Yes, we do. You know, um, we have a lot of great partners. We have, uh, as you mentioned, NORAD, which brings a lot of different diversity, uh, Fort Carson, uh, Peterson Air Force Base, Air Force Academy. All of those bring a very diverse, lot of people coming and uh, tourists going to the Air Force Academy. And we have a lot of great working relationships with all of those. We respond jointly and I mean, everybody's mutually out. aiding. It's, yep. a, it's a deal. But you've been with the department, what, 16 years? 16 years, starting my 17th year. So I'm not going to ask you a fire question. I'm going to ask you a living question, okay, a, a lifestyle question. When you're not responding, where do you guys hang out? Where do you go to eat? Where do you, where, where? And I'm looking for, like, a restaurant in Colorado Springs that is not on the radar that's a dive, but that you guys cannot stay out of because it's that good. You know, I think... Um we have a lot of great places in our city. Our city brings uh, a lot of diverse kind of tourists. What, what does Oz eat? And we love to go eat at the Edelweiss for dinner, uh, just east of the Broadmoor here. Great German restaurant. It's kind of on a very Here we go. Street. Hardy food. Yes, very hardy. Hardy very fire department food. <laughs> German food, yes. But you know, a lot of times, as you would know, police and fire were always looking for a great cup of coffee. So no, 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 no. Wait, wait a second. You might be looking for the cup of coffee. The cops are looking for the donuts. You yeah, know. well, that, come on. That too. It's, that it's, too. It, you know, it sounds like such a stereotype, but it's true. It is true. It is true. But we like to go down to Pikes Perk down on Tejon. That's a great. Not place Pikes to get Peak. A, Pikes Perk. Pikes Perk on Tejon. Great place to get a cup of coffee. And an occasional so, donut. Come occasional, on, come on. Occasional. You know, we're trying to stay more and more fit these days. Uh, as you mentioned, just trying to make all that fitness, all the gear we carry, you know, trying to be fit, ready to go for that rescue. Yeah, but people don't realize that you're wearing gear that's about 80 pounds. Exactly, exactly. I mean, if you put on the Scott Packs and the helmet, I mean, I got the old school helmet when I, when I, I have the old, I'm talking the old leather helmets, we're still wearing them. Oh, yeah. How about that? Yeah, great. You, you you're know, not wearing the, you don't have the leather ones anymore, you got the plastic ones. Right, you know, our gears came a long ways, they're really redesigning all of our bunker gear, uh, even all of our SCBA equipment, but you're still right, it's a lot of weight. Then when we're carrying all the tools, saws, you need to be really fit. But here's the cool part about it, because you can say this on the air, if I showed up at the firehouse today, or anybody listening to the show called ahead, they could probably come home and check you guys out and, and get a ride along. Oh, we love, we love people to stop by, especially bringing your young children. We love them to stop by, crawl around on the trucks. We'll give them a tour. Firefighters love people visiting. And by the way, there's no brochure. It's not a guidebook item. Just show up. It, just show up. Just show up. We love people to just stop by, have a cup of coffee, visit with us, learn about what we're doing, and... Let those kids crawl all over the fire truck. It's and then go in there and ask for the best German food and donuts in town. And somebody tells you that something tells you that Oz will tell you where it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then, then uh, when we get off shift. Yeah, here know, comes. Come on. It's time to go have probably a really good brew. And um, Where's that? You know, either Jack Quinn's down on Tejon or Pikes Peak Brewery up uh, in Monument. Two great places that we like to go have a good uh, brew after we're off shift. Only when you're off shift. Only when yeah, you're off shift. There you go. <laughs> All right, so the one t term you haven't heard me say is fine dining, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're going to do that, right, a special occasion here in Broad uh, either at the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs, where do you go? Um, you know, fine dining. It's, uh, there's, there's some great places. Um, I'd say if you really wanted to have a treat, probably come in here to the Broadmoor. Just, it's such a great cornerstone of our city and uh, what everybody comes and sees. Great place to have a really, if you're really looking... But um, the famous, if you want to have a great steak, go to the famous uh, downtown. That's, that's some really good fine dining. And, of course, Oz loves it when he gets a call here to the Broadmoor because he gets to come to the Broadmoor. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of great amenities. Well, there's so, another alarm at the Broadmoor. I guess we're just going to have to respond. <laughs> 
Amazing. Yep. Steve Oswald, the fire captain here at the uh, Colorado Springs Fire Department. And you heard it from him. Come down, jump on the truck. They'll take you out. Exactly. We'd love to have you come uh, do a ride-along with us. You could probably maybe catch a fire, see what we do in a live action. That's a deal. Back right after this. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Colorado Springs is so many things to so many people, and always surprising. You know, you'll, you'll find when I first came here years ago, there, there was the Colorado College for Women. I never even knew about that. The Air Force Academy, the, the, an entire division of the United States Army, uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee. I mean, there's just so many things here that, that, that sort of define it as a whole, but you'd never expect to find any one of them here. Uh, and my next guest might fit into that category, too. She's the executive director of the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center. Of education. Okay. Executive director of education. Fine. Go ahead and correct the host on the air. <laughs> See if that's going to get you anywhere. Tara Thomas, how are you? I am very well, thank you. So tell me what you guys do there, because you know, if I look in the brochures, right, you'll see stuff for Pikes Peak. You'll see stuff for the Air Force Academy or their football team, or you'll see stuff uh, for stuff for the military, too. But right. you don't really see a lot of stuff for you guys. So what is it that you're doing there that we can do and have fun doing? Well, we offer a wide variety of art classes for all ages, starting at two years old all the way through adult. Uh, wheel throwing and watercolor and just all sorts of things. Ceramics, too? Ceramics, too. Ah, see, I'd come and do that again. My favorite time as a kid, my mom put me in ceramics class. And the whole idea of the kiln and, and the wheel and working with the clay, I mean, let's put it this way. My, my work was later described as early abstract, <laughs> okay? That, that'll give you an idea of how good I was. But I found it so therapeutic. It was, it was great. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My mother still has my little... Play, little oh yeah, yeah, they're still there too. Uh -huh. People still come to my house and go, "Who did that?" And I go, "Yeah, well, that, that was me." me. <laughs> but you can do that, right? Yes. Anytime you come yes. to Colorado Springs. Yep, and we're open for beginners all the way through advanced students. And delusional people like me. Yes. Okay, so you've got that opening, right? right? Yep. But once again, you're not you're not in the in the, all the brochures. So how do you find you? Well. Um, a, we're downtown Colorado Springs, so we're not too far from Colorado College, which you mentioned. We have a website. Which, by the way, is no longer called the Colorado College for Women, is it? No, it's not. It's just Colorado College. I love it. Yep. I love it. Yep. How and long? Now, you've been there how many years? I've been there almost 17, 18 years. So they haven't found out? No. Okay. <laughs> What's the biggest surprising thing that people find when they come to the center? I think the wide variety of offerings. You know, we have a theater, we have a museum, we have the art school. Um, we have a tactile gallery, so you can. There was actually an area where you can go in and, and touch art. So it's interactive and it's participatory. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Now you mentioned ceramics. Of course, yes. that got my attention. Mm -hmm. Woodworking. We don't have woodworking. No woodworking. What's the matter with you? <laughs> Occasionally. That was another course I failed in high school <laughs> called shop. Yeah. Got it. Occasionally yeah. we'll have somebody, an instructor, come in that'll propose a class for something a little bit different like that. But sure. on a regular basis, we don't have it. Now, because you have such military presence here, you work with the military as well. Yes, we do. Tell me what you do. We actually have a program called Military Artistic Healing. And 
it's for active duty and veterans that are suffering from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or, and or TBI, traumatic brain injury. And it's mostly a creative expressions class. So they're learning technique, but they're also learning how to process through some of the mental suffering and mental um, injuries that they might have. And so they can get a lot of that emotion, a lot of those things out onto a canvas and get rid of it. It's a way to express themselves in a different way. Absolutely, absolutely. How long have you been doing that? Uh, this program's been going on for about six years. And, and I bet it's just growing. It's been growing. We've been getting some national um, recognition for it, a lot of local you know, recognition as well. Now, assuming that their work is, is something that's not just therapeutic, but it's okay. I mean, do, do you have actual exhibits? We do. We have um, actual exhibits. Next year, we're planning a large citywide exhibition of the works, um, along with uh, workshops and other things for the military as well. And their wives and their wives, we started a military family program, so actually the kids and um, the spouses are able to join in on a program. And the kids. And the kids, seven years old and up. Really? Yes. Amazing. Yes. Yep. What's the most surprising piece of art you've seen that come out of that? You know, it's been such a wide variety of I I'm works. talking about one that really has an emotional resonance. Oh, there's been a lot of, um, Oh, they're just, there's so many of them. Um, some of them have been very, uh, almost disturbing for me on the outside looking at it with blood and broken glass and some of the things that they've experienced. But then some of them are just very beautiful as well. And, and so uplifting and inspiring. Yes, absolutely. And so there's this wide variety because they're all in a different place in their lives and in their emotional well-being. Right. But it's nice that you can provide that, for, that forum for them and, and, and that yes. place for them yes. because therein lies some hope. Yes, and I've seen some incredible changes in some of the soldiers that we've had come through. Um, and so that's what makes it so, you know, so intriguing to me and so um, worthwhile for us to do. And, and for people who are visiting Colorado Springs, then they can come to the center and see that, too, yes. which, is, yes. which is, once again, not in your typical brochure and not right. in your typical guidebook. Right. But it's something that would be a life-changing experience, if not to watch, then just to appreciate. Right. And this is one of those things, you know, there's a wide variety of things that we do that are for, that we don't talk about a whole lot. We don't. Yeah, but you know what the good news is? I'm glad that you talked about it with me. Me too. Absolutely. Yeah, you got it. Tara Thomas from the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. There you go. Keep that going. This is Flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You got to pay with plastic. If you have a this segment of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Greater Fort Lauderdale. Visit sunny.org for more information and say hello to Sunny. You know, we live in a world of celebrity chefs. Everybody is a celebrity chef. Everybody has their own show. Everybody has their own brand or star chefs. How about smart chefs? I'd like to live in a world of smart chefs. And my, my next guest might, uh, might hold on to that category. He's the executive pastry chef here at the Broadway. His name is Adam Thomas. Adam, good morning. But here's my question for you. Yes, sir. You heard my introduction. Absolutely. Right? 
You, you buy that? Yes, sir. Tell me how you buy that. Uh, Food Network and Bravo TV made... Um, Keep going. Made chefs cool. Uh, made, made it okay to be a chef. I was um, talking to somebody the other day, and, and a few years ago, being a chef was sort of a, uh, an option. It was, you know, I don't want to go to college, so I'll cook for a living. Um, Is that your story? Kind of, yeah. I needed to earn some money, and so I started cooking in my dad's cafe when I was a teenager. Um, but nowadays, it's, uh, it's, it's cool to be a chef, and all the chefs are rock stars. And, um, but unfortunately, it's, it's creating a culture of young cooks who are coming out of culinary school looking for their TV contracts, so it's making uh, working chefs' lives a little bit harder. Well, let's talk about the concept of a working chef, because it's one thing for you to be a chef here at the Broadmoor. It's where you are, it's where you work, it's where I see you, it's where I eat your food, right? It's another thing that if you have a brand and you have 17 restaurants, you can't be in more than one kitchen at a time. And all of a sudden, the quality inevitably has to suffer. I remember, and I'm sure you know the story, of, of, the, uh, of the chef overseas who didn't get his Michelin star for one of his restaurants. He committed suicide. Yeah. So, but he couldn't have gotten that star because he wasn't there. Right. So where do you draw the line? Well, you know, there's a lot of very talented restaurateurs out there, good, good chef restaurateurs, guys who... Uh, got their, their name and their recognition in one restaurant and got a financial backer and opened up two or three more restaurants. I get it. So what you got to do is you got to hire people you can trust. And, and that's where the, the talent pool is, is lacking nowadays. One, there's hotels and restaurants popping up every day by the thousands. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you can only be in one place. If it's your vision and your name on the door, you can only be in one place at a time. All right, so it's your vision, it's your name on the door here. What are you doing differently here at the Broadmoor? At the Broadmoor, we've got the Broadmoor. It's just us. We don't have any outside influence. There's no, um, we're Broadmoor employees, okay? Broadmoor signs my paycheck. Uh, it says Broadmoor on my chef jacket. So there's no um, contract with, you know, Adam the chef. It's, I'm being paid. Right, but Broadmoor. under that umbrella, Adam the chef gets to do stuff that Adam wants to do. Within the concept of the restaurants and the Broadmoor philosophy. Okay, so tell me the Broadmoor philosophy then. But first and foremost, we're hoteliers, and we're here to make the guests happy. All right, so how are you going to make me happy in a gastronomic way that's going to make me want to talk about this place, not just as the Broadmoor, but also about what Adam did? Well, we stay true to the concept. Where we're sitting here in Ristorante del Lago, and if I were cooking you creme brulee, uh, it wouldn't really make sense. But I'm going to cook you the best Italian desserts that I possibly can. I'm going to do research. I'm going to get the ingredients in, and we're going to do it. All right, give me an example of what you would call, then, one of your signature dishes. Well, we have our dessert trolley here in Del Lago, and it's, uh, if you've ever traveled through Italy, <clears throat> a lot of the Italian restaurants, and it's funny when you say Italian restaurants in America, because restaurants in Italy are just restaurants, right? <laughs> um, we, a lot of the dessert concepts over there are, are on trolleys, you know, and the, the desserts are sitting out at room temp. Uh, cannolis, tiramisu, uh, cobblers, abaglione, those types of things. So that's exactly what we do. We've got uh, four or five desserts, cannoli, lemon bars, uh, tiramisu, and uh, bombolinis, and, and they're all set on the beautiful dessert trolley that's built and uh, handcrafted in Italy. So, a lot of butter. Absolutely. <laughs> a little bit. Oh, no, no, a, a lot. Bit, yeah. Come on, look at me. It's a it's lot. It's got to be good, right? It's got to be good. Yeah. That's right. Is there something that you put on your menu that you thought people would love and it just tanked? Or is there something that you thought, no one's going to buy this, but I'll put it on anyway, and, and everybody, it's just like raced off the menu because everybody loved it? Across the property, there's been a few occasions of that. Like? Um, exotic fruits. You know, I spent some time in Asia, 
uh, with the Capella Hotel Group, and uh, any time that I incorporate exotic fruits like passion fruit or um, anything that's not necessarily 100% familiar or available in the grocery stores here, it doesn't sell at all. It, it, it tastes great, and uh, you don't have to be a, a, a total food snob to understand what passion fruit is, but um, with my experience here, exotic fruits are not very, very popular. Um, we did a dish a while back in the summit called uh, Coop Cafe, which was a, a chocolate coffee cream with uh, ice cream and streusel on top, and we poured chocolate sauce table side. Now, it was one of those uh, need to finish the albums, so let's push one song out real quick story. <laughs> we had 10 desserts, and we needed an 11th one, so we just threw this together, and it, it, uh, it was at the top of the sales mix for about three months. So basically, it was a wonderful accident. Absolutely. What's it called again? Coop Cafe. And how much chocolate is in there? Uh, just a tiny bit. You are such a liar. How a much chocolate? Come on. Uh, per dish, 120 grams. So We're talking yeah. chocolate. Yeah, a little bit. Okay, so basically save up for it because you better make room for it. Absolutely. No, chocolate's good for you. Chocolate's not bad for you. I know. And, of course, the, the favorite buzzword of everybody right now is, and I, I want a bird to say it all the time, cacao. You know, cacao. cacao. Yeah. Ten years ago, nobody mentioned cacao. Ten years ago, nobody mentioned gluten-free. Yeah. I want, I want gluten-free cacao. Yeah, we can work on that, right? Absolutely. Adam Thomas, the executive pastry chef here at the Broadmoor. Thanks for joining us, man. I really appreciate that. When we come back, more Peter Gaber Worldwide from the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs. Right after this. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. <laughs> Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. When people ask me to define a place like Colorado Springs, you know, you can't just really do it with one adjective or one term because it's really a hyphenate. It's sort of sophistication in the West and it's also the wild, wild West. Uh, the sophistication of the West you can see, especially at a place like the Broadmoor. Uh, the Wild Dog West you got to look for, and the person I know who has found it is the executive director of the Western Museum of Mining and Industry, and his name is Rick Sowers. How are you, Rick? Very well, Peter. Thank you. Now, you're a transplant from Pennsylvania. Yes. Uh, why Colorado, and why that museum here? Well, it was time for a change. I, I've been in the public history field for over 30 years. Um, and I've worked for state government and done a whole lot of other things. And uh, it was time to move on to a different museum. And um, my wife has been in the travel business for 30 years. And she got her start uh, working uh, with her uncle out of uh, Denver uh, for Delta Airlines. And she assured me I love Colorado. And she was absolutely right because <laughs> the weather is spectacular here. Okay, the weather. But what about the history? The history is also really, really fascinating. Of course, Colorado didn't become a state until 1876. Came in, came in late and after the Civil War. After the Civil War. And, um, you know, Colorado Springs was founded by a, a Civil War general, uh, William Palmer, who was building a railroad south from Denver, the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. And he comes down 
to Ute Pass here, and there's a little dissolute town called Colorado City. It's got brothels, it's got bordellos, it's got bars. He's a Quaker. He doesn't like any of that, so he moves a few miles away and founds his own city. And, of course, they've merged since then. But that's, that's, that's the uh, essence of where Colorado Springs came from. And you talk about moving south. That railroad was a north-south railroad. Yes. How far south did it go? It eventually uh, got into Mexico. Because down in Mexico, there's still there's a there's a there's a, a railroad that's owned by the Mexicans in Mexico called Kansas Southern. Yes. And I'm like, how did that happen? You know. Uh, with all I, that, I can't answer. But with all the mergers, that's not surprising. So okay, Colorado gets built by the railroads along with everybody else, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, but what about the Wild Wild West aspect to it in terms of because the name of your museum is is mining. Yes. Uh, Colorado. Uh, its wealth came from the mining industry. Uh, originally, there was some mining. What kind of mining? Gold. Uh, there was some gold. Gold was discovered in um, what is now present-day Denver in the, in, the, in the 1850s and started to bring people into the And territory. the 1850s about the same year of the gold rush in California? Uh, about 10 years later. Yeah. Uh, and eight, in the late 1850s, there was a gold called Pikes Peak or Bust. A lot of people came out to this area. Uh, the developers salted the earth, and there really wasn't any gold to be found. Gold really wasn't discovered in this area until 1891 over in Cripple, the Cripple Creek Gold District on the other side of Pikes Peak. By 1900, that was the richest gold field in the world. Wow. Millions and millions of dollars coming out of the earth, and there's, there's still gold mining there today. What other kind of mining? Uh, molybdenum. Say that three times fast. Molybdenum, <laughs> molybdenum, molybdenum, uranium, silver, uh, lead, coal, and a whole lot of other minerals, uh, almost too numerous to mention. So Colorado's, because of the Rocky Mountains and the geography here, it's rich in minerals, and you need geologists and prospectors uh, who have an idea where they can find it. Well, rich in history, rich in mining culture, too. Yes. Explain the mining culture, because that's part of the history. Oh, well, the mining, mi mining culture, um, you, you get a place like uh, Cripple Creek, the, the first gold strikes there in 1891. Uh, five years later, you've got places like Cripple Creek and Victor. Cripple Creek's got 30 or 40,000 people. Victor's got 10 or 15, 20,000 people. There's more people up there than there are down here. Uh, because there's gold to be found. And, and you, you have people from my hometown back in Pennsylvania dropping everything and rushing to the gold fields because they think they can make a quick buck. The only people who really made a lot of money uh, are, the, are, are some of the early prospectors who would find the gold, then they'd sell the claim to a developing a mining company, and then the people who made the money are the storekeepers and the brothel owners who serviced the uh, mining industry. So we're back to the brothel owners again. Yeah. I get it. Was there any, any kind of mining done in Colorado Springs? Uh, coal. Coal. Wow. Uh, what is now the Rock Rimmon area, and there's a few other places in the springs, well, well it would have been north of present-day springs, where coal was discovered. Well, you have the mining culture of all those different minerals that you mentioned, mm -hmm. but then there's the history that predates that, predates it even being a state, oh, the, which is the Civil War. The Ute, uh, the Ute tribes lived in the area here. That's why it's called Ute Pass. And we're going to talk about that when we return with Rick Sowers, the executive director of the Western Museum of Mining and Industry. Back with more of Peter Greenberg Worldwide from the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs. We'll be back with more right after this. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm.
I've been talking with Rick Sowers, who's the executive director of the Western Museum of Mining and Industry. But it's more than mining and industry or mining and history. It, it, goes, it predates Colorado as a state. It's, it's, it's cowboys and Indians. Yeah, and, and uh, ranches and cattle drives and horses and Native Americans. Well, you know, when you, when you come to Colorado, you see artistic depictions, obviously, of that, yeah. uh, all the Remington stuff, of mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. But what's the biggest surprise to people when you talk to talk to them about the true history of Colorado that predates its statehood? Uh, they really don't understand it. What, what, what a lot of people don't realize, uh, you've heard of Mesa Verde. Sure. It's in the southwest corner of the state. And yet, people think it's in Arizona. It, but it's it's in it's in it's in Colorado. Now, if you wanted to see some things, you could actually go to uh, the Manitou Cliff Dwellings west of town here, uh, an entrepreneur back in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, uh, bought some cliff dwellings and moved them up here. So you actually don't even have to go all the way down there. <laughs> but in terms of this, of the history, because remember, we think about the Civil War not in terms of Colorado. We think of the Civil sure. War in terms of the South. But you, you, you had issues in here. You had the Sand Creek Massacre took place in southeastern Colorado out in the plains where uh, some of the Indian tribes out there were attacked by the soldiers and, and there were some massacres took place, uh, kind of a black mark in, in the Army's history, but most, mostly Colorado militia uh, attacking peaceful Native American tribes Wow! by mistake. How much of your museum celebrates the Indian component? Uh, a little bit, we talk about the geology of the area and where the Native American tribes were and then how they got pushed out of the area uh, to make way for the mining industry. You know, we go back to the, to the Northeast in America with the Indians claiming land and then getting rights to open casinos, Yes. right? That hasn't been the case here. No, not, not here. Uh, the, only, the nearest casinos are over in Cripple Creek and they're all, they're all um, corporate owned. <laughs> Though the Indian is not involved. No. no. How not, much? Not like, not like the Eastern United States. No. Right. Were there any Indian miners? Oh, absolutely. There were women miners. There were Chinese miners. Well, uh, the Chinese built the railroads. Yeah, and then when they were done building the railroads, they needed somewhere to go, and then uh, they drifted into the mining industry because it was steady work. When did other mining come in? I'm, I'm talking about like shale oil. You know, that's not really mining, but it is. That, co that comes in in the 20th century. And still happening today. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Where does Colorado stand in terms of the development of the industry itself? What kind of innovations do they do in terms of mining here that, that, that rippled out from here? I, I, I'd say not a whole lot, but there was a lot of work done in the field. Uh, as the mining in, uh, companies grow, they need certain things. And when the mining, mining starts here in the 1890s, the equipment is coming from the east, from foundries and factories in, in New England and the Midwest and being shipped all the way across country. And then you put them on, if you don't have burrows, you put them on horses, you put them on wagons, you drag all this heavy stuff up in the hills and put it all back together. That's a lot of money. Uh, in terms of the mining owners, it's a waste of time. So they create their own machine shops and they build whatever they need to build. So they just did it here? On, on site, ab absolutely. For example, Winfield Scott Stratton, who's the first millionaire out of the uh, Cripple Creek Mining District, he patented his own side dump ore car. Which means what? Uh, you load it up and then it opens you, up you to the side? You load it up, uh, you come over 
to a, a rail line, then you tip it over into a rail car, and you can do it a lot faster than having the miners uh, shovel with shovels. It out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Have you ever gone panning for gold? Absolutely. Have you ever gotten any? No. Come on, come on. <laughs> we, we, we have a gold panning experience at our museum, and we have the Gold Prospectors Club of Colorado Springs. They uh, crush up minerals. Wait, wait, wait. stop right gold. there. A gold panning experience, and you get no gold. Oh, you can find a little bit here and there. See, the problem with the Cripple Creek gold, uh, the gold's the size of the head of a pin. Today. It's very, yes, it's very, it, well, even back in the 1890s, it's very hard to see. Well, back in the 1890s, guys were making money doing that. Oh, yes, because they knew uh, they hit the, the mother loads, and uh, they made a lot of money crushing the gold and selling it. Getting it out of the, the problem is getting it out of the rocks in the Cripple Creek District because it, it doesn't come out very easily because of the way it's bound into rocks. When people come to your museum, what's the biggest thing they're not expecting to see? Working machines. Explain. We're called the West Museum of Mining and Industry because we talk about how the Industrial Revolution revolutionized the gold mining industry. Because in the past, you, you would, you would uh, dig a shaft and you'd go down into the earth, and then you'd have a windlass you know, being run by men or by animals bringing the gold up and down. You build some steam engines and later electric engines and you can revolutionize how fast things get done. So you walk in the, the front door of our museum, sitting in front of you is a 34-ton coreless steam engine that was built in 1895. I mean, the, the engineering in the 19th century should never be underestimated. Oh, abs no, no, no. That, that, that was uh, the late 19th, early 20th century's uh, absolute development uh, stuff you can't imagine. We, we have... And it works. Oh, yeah. That's it, what I love about it. It actually we, works. We call our, our nickname is the museum that works because we have a water pump, we, we have uh, a hoist engine, we have jackhammers. We show you how all this stuff works. And we have to take a break. Rick Sauer is the executive director of the Western Museum of Mining and Industry. Thanks very much. I really appreciate that. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? When I first came to this resort, um, I, I met a number of people who were Olympians uh, who hung out here. People like Peggy Fleming and, 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 and some of the great ice skaters. Uh, and one of the things that's interesting about Colorado Springs is you can't be here unless you're physically active in a sense. I mean, you, you can't ignore it. I mean, you, you've got great open air. You have hiking, biking, uh, mountain climbing. You've got, of course, you all the winter sports. And joining me now is someone who's trying to figure out how to make that into some of a, somewhat of a, of a mission for a lot of other people. Uh, he's the U.S. Director of Partnership with Ancient Olympia. And his name is Harris Kalafanos. How are you, Harris? I'm great. Now explain that to me. Well, uh, I'm from Greece, and when I came to... With the a name like Kalafanos, I figured that one out. Yeah, yeah. it means good voice. So when I came uh, from Greece about eight years ago, I realized uh, very quickly that people, although lived in Colorado Springs and may have heard about the U.S. Olympic Committee and the, all the NGBs and the training center and all the other Olympic organizations here, they didn't really understand or even know what the Olympic movement is about, what the structure is, where it comes from, what the legacy it carries. 
So about a year ago, we kind of decided to, okay, we need to create, to make an awareness campaign. So what a better way than to go back 3,000 years to the origins of the Olympic Games in Greece, in ancient Olympia, and create a sister city relationship with Colorado Springs and ancient Olympia, Greece. So basically an excuse for Harris to go home. Kind of. Yeah, okay, just, just busting on twice that. a year anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you do that? I mean, how do you create that awareness? It's one thing to say, it's another thing to do it. Well, the first thing is you have to go through all the government uh, minutia to actually establish a sister city relationship, both uh, from the Colorado Springs local government, but Greece is a smaller country, so you have to go through the actual government structure there. And you know and I know that the government structure in Greece is, is quite chaotic these days. Well, chaotic uh, is an interesting term, but in reality, for something like this, we made it happen. So within four months, we so did... So you, you find the one thing that the people in Greece could agree on? Kind of, yes. Yeah. Okay, so now what do you do with it? Well, so after four months, uh, the sister city situation was established, and then we put together uh, a program called uh, Ambassador, which essentially is a way to select a young individual from Colorado Springs between the age of 16 and 17 to go to ancient Olympia every two years during the lighting of the Olympic torch, which happens three months before the opening of the Olympic Games, to represent the city of Colorado Springs. Ancient Olympia has 12 other sister cities, and all those sister cities send a young individual to represent them and be one of the first torch barriers. So we thought this would be a great way to essentially create a, a, a process here in Colorado Springs where everybody would be aware of what happens there and therefore for uh, what the Olympic movement is all about, and at the same time send an ambassador to represent the city in a media event and international level. And you got the City Council of Colorado Springs to vote for it. Unanimously. How'd that happen? Well, it happened. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens now? We're coming up on the next Olympics will be 2016. Yes. What happens then? Well, right now we have con uh, contacted all the districts and we have about 33,000 kids that will participate in this essay contest where they have to write an essay for about, about 500 words that they would describe why they would want to be part of the program and when they're going to be exposed to the international media in Greece, what would they say about Colorado Springs? And you want to go to the Olympics too, don't you? <laughs> I've been already to four Olympics. I know you have, I know. So this is something that's in your blood. Yes. What's the biggest surprise that's going to come out of this other than just basic awareness? I think... I mean, the takeaway. I think the takeaway is that people will uh, realize three things. First, the people of Colorado Springs will be more aware of what the Olympic movement in their backyard means. And at the same time, I think in an international level, Colorado Springs will receive immense exposure that would benefit it from an international tourism standpoint, but also will put us its place in the map. You know, it's, it's ironic. It's sort of like asking people in New York if they've ever been to the Statue of Liberty, and they go, no. They see it, but they've never been there, right? People in Colorado Springs, you know, here's where the Olympic Committee hangs. Well, it's Colorado Springs, but in an essence, it's everyone in the U.S. They're not so aware about the Olympic movement versus if you grew up in Greece because we feel we invented the idea to an extent, there, is, there are curious. Well, you sort of did. Well, kind of. So there are curriculums, and there's, there's lessons about it all the way from elementary all the way up to college. And other than the school kids, because you've got that pretty wired, right? What about guys like me? Well, so we will, once we select the individual, which the progr program actually launches this uh, fall of, of 2015, by spring uh, of, of uh, 2015, we will have selected individual, and there will be several media events and media functions in Colorado Springs featuring the kid and the whole process. So therefore, not just the young kids, but individuals and adults will be aware of the program. 
So there's no chance for me at all to carry the torch? Well, you never know. We might put a program together like that, too, in the future. <laughs> yes, a special, special program for, for me, only because I, otherwise it would never happen. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, thanks for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> but the bottom line is, is there a website that people need to know about? Yes, of course. It's Sister Cities International, uh, Colorado Springs, uh, that you can go and find more information about. Great. Harris Kalafanis, using any excuse possible to figure out a way to get home to Greece, he's figured it out, and now 33,000 kids, right? Yep. Amazing. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now our radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh? In the world of, well, gastronomic snobbery, um, everybody thinks they're an expert. Uh, everybody's a foodie. And everybody wants to do one-upsmanship, and, and somebody has a better experience than another. And I'm one of those people who believe that, you know, being smart is admitting what you're dumb at. So I can appreciate wine, but I am not my next guest. My next guest is the master sommelier here at the Broadmoor, and his name is uh, Brandon Tebby. Brandon, not that many of you guys are on, only a little bit more than 200 of you around the world. Yeah, about 213, I believe. But who's counting? <laughs> Every year. <laughs> Every year. I mean, and it's a pretty rigorous test. It's actually it's more than one test, isn't it? Uh, it's three different parts. Yeah. Explain how that works. Uh, you have a blind tasting part where it's uh, six wines. You have 25 minutes. You've got to break them down, uh, basically down to varietal location, alcohol levels, tannin levels. It's a blind tasting. It's a blind tasting, yeah. See, I, I, would, I would fail immediately because I'd say that's red, that's rosé, and that's white. Bye. That's work. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that, that's all you need, but, yeah. but it's such a subjective business. It, 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 I mean, it is by definition because everybody's palate is different. It, to a degree, I think all wines in their core, though, have... I guess all wines speak to you in a certain way at their core. It's actually deductive tasting is what I would say instead of wine tasting. So you're trying to actually figure out what's actually there rather than the subjectiveness that some small A's go on tangents about. So. And, you know, for years people get, you know, it, it's sort of people have instantaneous love affairs with a certain kind of wine and then they go away. Yeah. You know, Sideways took care of Merlot, you know. Yeah. But, you know, there's that instantaneous love affair that people have with Chilean wines. And then we found out later on they really weren't Chilean wines. They were rebranded South African wines during the apartheid uh, sanctions, you know. And then, of course, came the Malbec craze, which, which is still, we're still here, right? Well, at least the Argentinians make wine for the Argentinians. They actually are wine appreciators as opposed to the Chileans who make wine for everybody else, but they don't necessarily drink it. Yeah. Um, what's the hottest wine on your menu right now? Uh, it's domestic. It's Cabernet, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. Still. It's all domestic. It's still by far the hottest wines. Yeah. Coming from where? Napa Valley, Washington, Oregon, Oregon Pinot Noirs. Well, that's what Oregon is famous for. Yes. Exactly, because of the climate. You know, with every state in, the Ameri in America, with the exception of one, ma makes wine. Yeah. Name that state that doesn't do it. Uh, Alaska? No. <laughs> You're you just failed my test. Oh, my God. No, North Dakota. Alaska makes wine. They don't grow it. That's true. But with every state making wine, including Colorado, is there such a thing as a good Colorado wine? Oh, yeah. There's lots, actually. Like? Uh, Colteris Cabernet Sauvignon from the Grand Valley. Uh, Infinite Monkey Theorem, which is actually made in... Say that slower. Uh, Infinite Monkey Theorem. So that was some geek who decided to get into the wine business? Yeah, he actually uh, he worked for uh, Sutcliffe Vineyards in Colorado, which produced really good wines. He uh, worked in New Zealand. I believe he worked in Burgundy as well. Um, he's kind of a crazy Englishman who uh, decided to uh, truck the grapes over the mountains at night and make the grapes in downtown Denver to make the wine. They're making wine in downtown Denver? Makes it in downtown Denver, yeah. Well, known for their wine? Yeah, urban, urban winery. So. It's called an urban winery? Yeah. yeah. I love it. All right, so those are the, the, the top sellers, but what's coming up? What, what do you see as up and coming? I'm starting to see kind of a resurgence back into Bordeaux, especially with the pr pricing starting to come down. So I'm selling a lot more Bordeaux. Malbec is still lively. And Oregon Pinot is starting to overtake uh, sales of California Pinot for me. All right. Now, a tougher question for you. 
What's the most overrated one? <laughs> it's not really that tough, actually. Uh, Ramado or like uh, orange wines, uh, anything oxidized style like Arbois. Those, a lot of those wines are, the Psalms love to bring them in, and then they just sit on the shelf. So I'd say those are definitely the most overrated. But what's the ones that are overrated that don't stay on the shelf? Uh, Malbec. Really? Yeah. You're not a Malbec fan? I like the single vineyard stuff. I like the things that they actually uh, spend a little more time, a little more extraction on. But, yeah, I'm not really a Malbec fan. Wow. See, I, I fell in love with it. I'm also a single malt fan, but that's a whole different area we're not going to talk about. I love single malt. Do you really? Oh, yes. What's your favorite? Uh, Mac 18, probably. Although I do like... Ardbeg. Ardbeg. Very nice. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's, an, intense, that's an intense single malt. Yeah. I'm not to draw back a little bit on the peat, so... See, that, I, the more peat, the merrier for me. Yeah. You know, Ardbeg, Lafroy, Lagavulin. Yeah, you open Lafroy across the bar, I can smell it. So it's <laughs> oh, you can smell it a mile away. Yeah. But you just do one a night, you're okay. Yeah. That's one glass a night. Yeah. I do Yamazaki as well. Or, or the Japanese one. Yes. Yeah, that's These guys, the, the, I have to say, the Japanese have really come up. Single malts are amazing, amazing. And the pricing is phenomenal. You know, I just came back from Iceland. They're making single malt in Iceland now. Wow. You know why? Thanks global warming. Glo because now they can grow the barley. Yeah. In Iceland, that they can make the, the single malt from. It's, it's one of the only things that you can say positive about global warming is they're making it's single malt in Iceland. That works for me the more I can drink. Right? I mean, and they're, de they're making single malt in Tasmania. Wow. Which is, uh, they're doing a good job. Nice. Yeah, I know. So the biggest surprise bottle on your, on your list? Uh, biggest surprise bottle on my list? That'd be hard to say. Uh, actually, not a huge fan of 2008 Burgundy, but we opened a bottle of Denis Morte, uh, Louis Saint-Jacques, and it was just mind-blowing. Absolutely amazing. So and what does that retail for? It uh, was on the list for 285 However, it disappeared. Well, see, it's a bargain. So Now, I've got one for you. You go to the, the uh, Paris, the new terminal at Charles de Gaulle at the airport in, in Paris, and they have the world's largest duty-free store, yeah. okay? In Europe, at least. And you go in there, and there's a glass-enclosed store within a store, and what do they sell there? Wine. Yeah. Now, who's going to the airport to buy wine? You know who it is? The yeah. Chinese. The cheapest bottle of wine in that store... $900. And they're buying wine. But they're doing something else, as you already know. They're buying the wineries. Yes. 40 have been in France in the last year and a half. Exactly. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. 
two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.